not a bad day. It's strange to be back here again though. I actually haven't been back here in so long. Like literally left and, and never came back, which is kind of probably says a lot about how I feel about the place. It hasn't really changed at all. It's just uh, the same place and the same feeling that I get when I come here of like, I suppose it was probably the loneliest time in my life really in, in lots of ways. What happens when you spend your life waiting? A wait that has no deadline, no definite time for when it will all end. If life as you know it is suspended, what happens in between? Uh, my name is Regina Henley and I'm 29 years old from Manola, which is near Castlebar in County Mayo. Uh, what I was doing before all this happened, I was living a normal existence, uh, had a normal childhood, teenage years, went to college, thoroughly enjoyed those years, and I suppose came out of college like everybody does when you graduate with plans for how your life is going to be and what you're going to do and where you'd like to go in terms of career and travels and relationships and everything else. But I guess all that came to a standstill really when I was uh, 25. I've known Regina for the past 10 years as we both did similar courses in college and we both work in the media. Regina is the sort of person you look forward to spending time with. She's quick-witted and fun, but Regina is also on the kidney transplant list. She carries out peritoneal dialysis every night on her own in her Dublin apartment. Good morning. Hiya. Come in. Oh, how are you? I'll try not to be here. Well, well, how was your night? My night was actually a bad night last night, unfortunately. Um, I don't know why. Sometimes you just have a bad night on it. Just uh, when the fluid goes into your tummy quite often, you can feel very, very full, especially if you're trying to lie down and sleep. So I just found it a little bit, made me feel a little bit sick last night. So... You get used to it. It's kind of like having a new baby, always being on dialysis. You kind of get used to just not sleeping full nights a lot of the time, you know, and you just get on with it the next day. You just have to, so it just makes things a little bit more difficult. So how many hours sleep do you think you got? Last night, I'd say I got about four hours sleep, so that's not great. Now, normally I would be better than that, you know. It just does happen the odd time, you know, that it does something you just don't feel very well sometimes when you when you lie down. So it'll be nice to get off the machine though. So it's kind of, you can get on with your day once you're off it. So you'll see it says on the machine now, end of therapy, as in it's finished. Just ask me to close all the clamps along all the lines. So 
And I do that. And once that is done, it should be happy enough now to let me disconnect. Yeah, so you'll see there it says disconnect yourself. So mind yourself there. So Because of Regina's journalistic background and love of writing, she keeps a blog about her experiences on the kidney transplant list called This Limbo. About me. Fun-loving non-smoker. Social drinker. 29. Looking for a necessary new lease of life. Would like to meet healthy kidney who shares her interest in travel without peritoneal dialysis machine and her fetish for midriffs without tubes attached. Good sense of humour in bad times, essential. Only kidneys interested in long-term relationship need apply. This is dialysis room. The main thing is my dialysis fluid. These are the, the light dialysis fluids. Um, so they're quite heavy. If you even tried to lift them, you know, they're... They weigh about, oh, about 10 pounds each. So if I have to go anywhere overnight, I have to bring, you know, a number of these boxes with me. And that's an absolute pain because I have to drag them up and down stairs and that kind of thing. And then I have the gadgets that come with dialysis, which are the patient line, which is the line that extends from my tummy to the machine, a drain line, which takes the fluid out of my, my tummy and goes into the sink or whatever overnight, and then cassettes, which just, they operate the machine for me. So, I mean, it is quite compact, I suppose, in some ways, and it's it's great, but um, I do look forward to the day when I'll have a spare room again and can put, like, something normal, like a chest of drawers in here or a desk for, for writing on or whatever. So that'll be nice. So this is the machine. Well, this is an imposter at the moment because my usual machine, whom I call Brendan, uh, has been taken away for his service, which happens about every 18 months. So this is an imposter who's been sent to keep me going while Brendan is being serviced. And this imposter is actually much noisier than my normal machine. Um, because I think it's an older version of, of the, the dialysis machine, but it does the job and still it's nice to have a name for it because overnight it does beep at night quite a lot and it was nice to have a name to shout out to kind of go, Brendan, shut up. So now I don't have a name to shout out when it's bugging me at night. So it's just to get the really simple case of just... Uh, disconnecting your patient line, putting a little cap at the end of the tube that's constantly attached to my tummy, like so. Just again, you have to just be very careful that you don't touch anything, because if you do, it just leaves you open to infection. So I'll just secure my tube to my tummy again with a little piece of tape, and that's it then. All finished for another night. There's approximately 600 people on the kidney transplant waiting list in Ireland. Beaumont Hospital carried out a record number of kidney transplants in the first half of this year. 
111 transplants were performed during the first half of the year, compared with 121 for all of 2010. This is great news, but for people still waiting for a kidney, that's all it is. News. Regina's own journey began in 2007. I just moved to Galway and I went to the doctor for a regular checkup. Thought, you know, I'll have a new GP in this new city that I'm living in. And literally it was two weeks after I'd moved there and went to her and she checked my blood pressure and she said, you know, that's high. Has it ever been high before? And I said, no. And I said, no, there's no history of anything like that in my family. No history of blood pressure or hypertension, as they call it. And um, that was the start of it. And, and like I went away that day. I suppose she wasn't too worried because she said, you know, you're fit and young and healthy. I'm sure it's nothing. Come back to me uh, in a few weeks. But I think I went away that day thinking something's wrong here. And uh, it, I suppose it, it took a few months to play out, you know, as these things do. There was no great panic initially or urgency about it. I was sent for an ultrasound to check my kidneys. Uh, that came back normal, which would normally, if the kidneys are damaged, they, they shrink. But the ultrasound showed that my kidneys were perfectly normal size still. So that didn't lead us anywhere. It kind of led us to a brick wall, really, in terms of finding a reason for high blood pressure. Um, but tests were repeated again about three months later and it was I think about February this would be the year 2008 and uh, the tests were repeated and I remember the GP ringing me at about half past six on a Thursday evening and I, I remember thinking why why would she ring me at this time of the evening why hasn't she gone home why am I urgent you know and she just said to me, Regina, um, have you got private health insurance? And I said, yes, I do. And she said, well, I'd like you to get in to see a nephrologist as quickly as possible. And I said, what's a nephrologist? And she said, that's a kidney specialist. I think there's a big problem with your kidneys. Tuesday, June 21st, 2011. I am two years on dialysis today. I wish it was winter because it is the kind of anniversary that I would like to cloak in darkness. I would rather not have opened the curtains today. The most relevant statistics now stand as follows. There have been 728 nights of dialysis, two nights off with permission from my consultant. That amounts to 5,824 hours of being attached by a line that runs from my tummy to my machine, or 242 full days. I have carried 1,092 litres of dialysis fluid around in my tummy throughout the daytime hours, and by night a total of 8,736 litres have flowed in and out of my abdomen. I have taken about 8,000 tablets and 30 energy injections. I have disposed of about 200 bags of hazardous medical waste. I have spent zero nights in hospital. When I look back, you know, I mean, obviously in hindsight, everything makes a lot more sense. What I remember from that time is I'd get up in the morning and I might have had, you know, eight or nine hours good sleep. And I remember I used to walk into the bathroom and I'd look at myself 
I suppose, you know, that early morning light kind of. And I just go, God, I look wrecked. You know, I'd look like I hadn't slept at all. I'd be pale and drawn looking. And, you know, that didn't make sense to me. As time went on, then there'd be certain mornings I'd be going, getting up and going to work. And I remember I'd go to put on my shoes and I'd be like, they won't fit. You know, my feet would be swollen. Um, so I had those kind of symptoms. But like so many people with kidney disease, you don't feel unwell. You know, I didn't feel sick. Um, you know, even though I had high blood pressure, I didn't have headaches or anything like that. So, you know, it's kind of once the morning passed, I felt fine, you know, because the swelling would go down. You know, you put on a bit of makeup, you cover it up for the day, you get on with your day's work and you could nearly forget about it again. Um, but I suppose, like I said, I knew there was something wrong. And when I look back on that time, I was extremely anxious. The result was, I mean, when I do think of what would have happened if I hadn't been caught at that point, uh, my kidney function probably would have decreased very quickly. In October 2007, I had a kidney function of about 85%, which is, you know, it's it's normal. Very few people have 100% kidney function in adulthood. Um, by February 2008, so about three or four months, it had dropped 35%. So it was going down very, very quickly. The reality is, I suppose, if I hadn't been caught, I was headed for a stroke or a heart attack probably quite quickly and I would have died, you know? Hello, how are you? How are you? Good. Oh. Great to see you. You too, Pat, you too. Regina has never been hospitalised since they put a catheter in her stomach so she could carry out dialysis at home each night. As a result, she doesn't get to meet others on the transplant list, like those who have dialysis in hospital three or four times a week. However, by taking part in the European Transplant and Dialysis Games in 2010, she met a number of people at different stages of their transplant journey, like Darren Cawley. I made the front cover of a magazine. What magazine? Transplant News. <laughs> There's no way there's a magazine called <laughs> I've never seen it before, but uh, you know the ones, the transplant coordinators, they do it for the industry, for the nurses, the doctors, the people like that. So the huge to, audience. To zip them up. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's at least four, four people. Three to four hundred. Perhaps to forty. Could you not get woman's weight? <laughs> Been there, done that. Oh, you have I done woman's weight. Oh, twice, you? yeah. Well, it's your real hit of the magazines, yeah. aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I had to wear you, white you shirts stood. open at the top and rosary beef. You, you did not. <laughs> Believe anything, won't you? Oh, yeah. My we head, put your hand on my head there. Here, Darren Coley from Westport, who just received a transplant five months ago. Aoife Mitchell, who's engaged to Darren Coley and who's healthy. <laughs> we don't Show like off. her. <laughs> when I met Darren, uh, we were both actually working in the same hotel and... Um, I knew, I knew that he was sick, and that's a terrible, you know, broad term to use. But I knew that I'd actually went to school with his sister, and I remember um, we were in first year, and you know, you have to say your prayers, and the, the nuns, and they and they said, uh, she said, I want to pray for my brother. He's really, really sick. But I never really knew exactly what what it was or what was wrong. But we got together anyway after a Christmas party, and um, eventually I came to to realise what exactly it entailed the first time I think I ever got a bit of a fright we weren't long together and we were at the cinema 
and he put his arm around me. Now, for anyone who knows about dialysis, uh, you have a fistula on your arm, whereby the vein, Darren was on for so long, the vein was more, got more and more bigger each time. And all I could feel was this thing buzzing, and I just had no idea. I, to be honest, I thought this guy was a bit of a weirdo. I was like, <laughs> what is that he has, you know, coming up beside me? But um, over the years, it definitely it restricted our lifestyle more than, than anything. Like, Darren wasn't your typical sick person. He was outgoing and positive. And to be honest, I felt more like the person who was depressed and sad and, you know, given out all the time. Um, but I suppose Darren had always been sick as long as I had known him. So it's something you just get used to. You know, it was just in your head automatically. You didn't think of it any other way. Um, then, of course, after a few years, started talking about getting married and, you know, your life choices and where you want your life to go. And uh, Darren was definitely a bit more cautious than I was. Um, he just had this idea in his head that he just didn't want to get married while he was on dialysis or while he felt like he was sick. And I, I kind of was the <clears throat> pro active one there and said that life can't be on hold. You have to move on. You have to try and... So he did try <laughs> and he did succeed because um, he proposed to me in January and exactly one month to the day that he proposed to me, um, he got the call for a transplant. So I definitely think that I was his lucky charm. <laughs> Darren was just 20 when he was diagnosed with kidney failure. He was transplanted after just six months on the transplant list. But a year and a half later, he developed a serious virus that attacked his kidney and had to have it removed. He then had to wait nine years and carry out hemodialysis every second day in hospital before finally being transplanted for the second time last February. Well, for me, most people didn't know I was on a transplant list because I didn't know I was on dialysis because I tried not to give that, that outlook. That's, I didn't give that information. The biggest thing about being on the waiting list is waiting. <laughs> It's the total uncertainty. For me, when I was 22, 23, when I lost the kidney, I thought a year or two I'd get a transplant. But because of the virus, I had to wait four or five years to get that out of my system. And then I was five years on the transplant waiting list. After the first two years, I stopped thinking about it. You, you couldn't live your life with the bag packed in the corner, waiting to go, you know, always having your phone on. I kind of just got a bit sloppy and said, all right, well, this is my reality now and I just have to deal with it. So I, I have found out that uh, I have the same viral infection that I lost the last kidney to. So it's been 10 years since I ha lost that kidney, so there is some medical advances. So they're trying out different drugs and they're working at the moment. But every time I go back, every month I go to the hospital, it's, it's nerve-wracking because they could tell me, listen, same as before, uh, there's nothing we can do, you might have to lose the kidney in a few months. So I'm always very nervous. I'm going to the hospital now tomorrow and you just don't know what they're going to say. So... I'm not confident in myself yet, you know, to, to go out there, get out, get active as much as I used to, well, as, as I say, used to. When I was on dialysis, I was so active, that was still so normal, so I'm not quite there yet. Bef when, when I had the transplant initially, I thought three or four months, I'd be walking away from the hospital, never want to see it again. I'll be 100%, I'll be fully active, working, going to the gym, playing games again. But it hasn't happened like that. We're five months now, and I'm still thinking, oh, maybe after six months... I feel a lot better and I'll be more confident. I just haven't any confidence in my body. It's like a totally different body. Because any time I feel a certain feelings, it's after nine years on dialysis, I knew myself inside out. I knew 
how I felt when I have to drink more, when I don't need any more to drink. Whereas I, I'm not that, I've, I have no confidence yet in, in my body. It feels pretty good, but just I don't know what the signs mean yet. I haven't learnt it. They don't like you to know where the kidney came from. There's a kind of, I don't, I don't really know, moral issues there about the family and how they felt about it. You know, they're going through the worst time in their life and I'm hopefully going through the best time, you know, coming up. But what happens in that case, they keep it anonymous. But after six months or a year when you're feeling good again, you send in an, a letter to the transplant coordinator and they'll send the letter to the family. And I'm going to write that letter and when I do, it'll portray what it means to me and I guess Aoife because... As she said, I had no intention of getting married on dialysis. I didn't want to wake up after my wedding to go into hospital. So therefore, it means a huge amount to me on so many fronts. I can work, I can earn a living, I can get married, you know, travel. So life begins again. Tuesday, March 22nd, 2011. Sunshine makes me happy. The sad truth, however, is that my relationship with the sun is over. Once transplanted, the rays it emits will be my nemesis, as one of the unfortunate upshots of having a new kidney is that you are left extremely prone to skin cancer when on anti-rejection drugs. Already I have been advised to wear sunscreen every day for six months of the year, from March to September, even while on dialysis. And I was told in Beaumont Hospital that there is a 100% chance I will develop skin cancer if I do not take at least three leaflets worth of precautions in future. I did not point out the highly educated doctor that when the odds reach 100%, you are looking at something of a certainty rather than a chance. They have told me I will never again sunbathe. It's not that I ever got a tan, the sun largely ignored me. But that pleasure of being blanketed by natural heat is a therapy and a privilege that I will miss. It's one of the few glories open to everyone, the poor and the rich alike. It costs nothing to lounge under some splendour and soak up the vitamin D and the happiness that a cloudless blue sky can invoke. It costs nothing but it could cost me my life. In some ways, for all the limitations that are placed on me through this illness, taking away my sunshine is the worst. I remember somebody telling me once the definition of trauma, and it's, it's actually just that you can't take anymore. I think that evening I definitely felt some version of trauma in that I remember actually physically shaking, which had never happened to me in my life before, but actual feeling, I suppose, a true sense of fear because it's the worst kind of fear because you can't control this at all. There's nothing you can do to stop this happening. Um, so that was the start of it. So what did you do? Who did you ring? Or that that evening, I mean, I was going out with the guy at the time, and he was he was with me um, that evening, and I came home. Uh, we came home that evening. I didn't tell my mother that evening, so I thought, you know, it's horrible to get news like that at night. So I didn't tell her anything about it. 
I suppose in some ways there was part of me that was relieved in that I kind of thought, look, I'll go into hospital. I, uh, the high blood pressure really scared me, you know, that, that element of it, because my dad died of a heart attack and I have a real fear of sudden death. And I think I, there was part of me that was relieved and that kind of thought, OK, I'll go into hospital tomorrow. They'll bring my blood pressure down somehow and, you know, we'll, we'll sort this out. I think I was still in the zone of thinking this is something that can be sorted out and it won't disrupt my life in any great fashion. Unfortunately, this wasn't something that could be sorted out quickly and Regina was diagnosed in Galway with chronic kidney disease. Regina first visited her GP for a routine checkup in October 2007. On Holy Thursday 2008, her life was put on hold when the kidney specialist she was referred to sent her to Merlin Park Hospital as a matter of urgency. Today, Regina has travelled back to Galway for the first time to visit Dr David Lappin, the nephrologist who diagnosed her. Is this strange for you? Uh, yeah. Too many bad memories of this place. <laughs> a lot of bad memories. It's strange coming back to it. No. I thought, I didn't think I'd be coming back still on dialysis. No. There you go. Sweet 30. Yeah. Hi, Dr. Lappin. I met Dr. Lappin. I would have thought early in 2008. And I remember the day so clearly because it was a Holy Thursday and I was working. And I had to get off work a little early to come out here. And it being Galway and it being an Easter weekend, the traffic was horrendous. And I was running so late. And I remember phoning Dr. Lappin's uh, secretary and just saying, look, I'm going to have to postpone, you know, I'll have to reschedule, I don't think I'll get there. And I remember her being just, you know, she was like, oh no, it's fine, he'll wait for you. And not knowing anything of consultants at the time and painting them all with the same brush, I was like, thinking, like, why isn't this guy gone playing golf, like, on an Easter weekend? Why is he waiting to see me? And I suppose that was my first inkling that maybe something was wrong and something was a bit urgent about this, so... uh yeah, I, I do remember the first time I met you, Regina. Um, your kidney function was quite markedly impaired, and but what really struck me that day was how high your blood pressure was, and that's that that uh, almost frightened me as well. Um, so I think we arranged to admit you urgently at that point in time to control your blood pressure and do some investigations. I remember you telling me that when you were about twelve, you'd had a urinary tract infection and you'd seen a doctor uh, about that. Um, so I went back and found your old notes actually in Merlin Park. And it was discussed that there may be more than a urinary tract infection affecting you at that point in time. But uh... I, I did. I was quite sick when I was 12 and I did have a strep throat and I did have a urinary tract infection. <clears throat> and I think obviously something along the way, because if you could explain how IgA nephropathy comes yeah. about, it's. So one can get kidney disease associated with a streptococcal throat, but your situation wasn't that. Uh, you had a, a different kidney disease, relate, again, related to sore throats. You had a disease called IgA nephropathy, uh, which we uncovered on your kidney biopsy. Um, so 
Igenophropathy nephropathy is one of the more common kidney diseases that we see not only in Ireland but uh, across the world. Um, it's characterized by the deposition of an antibody into the kidney called immunoglobulin A. Now everybody has this antibody in their blood but people who develop kidney injury when this antibody circulates in their blood it happens because the structure of the antibody is slightly different in people like yourself Regina than to in the general population. So the antibody isn't cleared out of the blood the way it would be in someone who doesn't have the disease. It gets deposited into the kidney and when it drops into the kidney uh, it incites an inflammation and that inflammation results in a scar. In the same way as an, an analogy would be if you cut yourself and the wound heals and leaves a scar behind. That scar doesn't function. The scarring in the kidney is a non-functioning part of the kidney and this process grumbles along for many years resulting in, in, in kidney failure. Now why did it happen to you and not everybody? Um, only about 50% of people with this with IgA deposited in their kidneys will develop kidney failure and we don't fully understand yet why that is the case. And can I ask would you have thought that I would be transplanted at this stage? I would have thought as a young woman, without actually looking at what blood group yeah. you are at this point in time, that you would be, yeah, that you would have been transplanted mm. at this stage, yeah. <laughs> They're trying to make an example of me. They're leaving me there. Um, everybody's pretty equal. Priority is given to waiting time. So the longer you are on, the more likely you are to get, to get a kidney. Um, but obviously the match has to be good. So only people for whom the kidney matches can be called. Um, so and the, the surgeon makes that call, I presume, is it? The surgeon makes that call. So if a kidney comes up that matches several people, firstly they look for the best match because that kidney then will have the best possible outcome. And they re regard time um, waiting on the list as very important. So if two people are similar and one person's on the list longer than the other, the, the longer waiting person will get the kidney, in general. Wednesday, April 20th, 2011. It's a strange conversation that goes on in the clinical environment between the medic and the patient, both experts in their own way, one through familiarity with the textbook cases, the other through the personal experience of their own broken body. They know so much, but they fail to understand so often. Like yesterday, when a kind nurse in the course of a chat wrecked the sunniest day of the year so far by telling me the average wait for a kidney transplant in this country is really now four years. Not the two years, as I was told when I was listed in August 2009. And to be honest, I'd rather not have known. I think that's the toughest thing about dialysis. If you're on chemo or any other treatment, I know they have terrible side effects and so on but you know there's an end to that you know you're going to be on this for three months or six months and I think the human being can mentally deal with that and that you can tick off those days and you can see an end point and you can work towards it but I think with dialysis that is by far the hardest part is the fact you have to you have an indefinite period on this it could end tomorrow it could end in two years and it's very very difficult to keep yourself strong for that amount of time and to keep yourself mentally you know okay with it and to deal with that I think.
thankfully that's changing to a degree. In the last couple of years, we've commenced a living-related transplant program. So for individuals who do have a willing living donor, there is a more predictable end to dialysis. And that program is proving quite successful and we're seeing increasing numbers of patients receiving kidneys from relatives or friends. Uh, so there are options that one can always consider. Yeah, I clearly have really bad people skills because nobody has offered but, um you know, it's a great thing. I mean, the living donation is, has made a huge difference, you know, and from my selfish point of view, I just think, well, that's one less person on the list, you know, when they when those people get kidneys from sisters or brothers or husbands or wives or whatever, it, it helps to sort that out and keep the numbers relatively down or keep them closer to my file, hopefully. People, what people don't realise is what they don't see with kidney disease and it's such a silent illness and it's an invisible illness which I think is, is the best and the worst thing about it. I obviously like the fact that you know a person will look at me and won't automatically assume I'm sick that's obviously a good thing but there are the downsides to that as well in that people probably underestimate how hard it is on the body and how much you're struggling you know, just doing, getting through the day and doing a day's work and doing your few chores around the house. It's, it's a mammoth effort some days for me and for everybody else who's on dialysis and awaiting a, a kidney transplant. I think a lot of people assume when I get a transplant that I will be magically fixed and I always have to explain to people that that's not the case. This is going to be a lifelong condition that I have to deal with a lifelong struggle I suppose so I think that's what a lot of people don't know that it will you know a transplant isn't a cure it's just another form of treatment it's just uh, you know obviously it's the best form of treatment that we have at the moment but it's not the end of the story by any means there's the possibility a transplant will fail I've kind of accepted I will be back on dialysis at some point in my life again you know I mean that's inevitable when I'm not even 30 at this point. Physically, on the upside, I've gotten really skinny. <laughs> Well, I'm not even really skinny, but you know, you do lose weight and for any young girl, you know, it's the best thing that could have happened in some ways. Um, I know when I go to my doctors originally, they'd ask, you know, have you lost weight? And I'd be like, yes, I have. It's excellent. Uh, so that's one side or one side effect of it, obviously, is you, you do lose a little bit of weight. But, not, you know, that's just because you have to be a little bit more careful about what you eat and so on. Um, I suppose... The biggest change physically is that I have a tube in my tummy and that's my, my biggest issue with it. Uh, that'll be there until I eventually do have a transplant and they're, they're happy with that transplant and then they will remove that tube from my tummy. It was implanted there, I guess, just nearly two and a half years ago now and that's the biggest imposition, I guess, of the whole illness for me is having that tube in my tummy because it makes me feel very very strange and it's something I'm very conscious of I guess with, with other people in particular.
Regina marked the fourth anniversary of her journey towards a kidney transplant last October. She still works 40 hours a week, is addicted to the Mad Men TV series, meets friends at weekends, and tries to run an average of 20 kilometers a week. Normal things, because everyone who is sick wants to be normal. The waiting continues. I should get a kidney. There is nothing to say that I wouldn't get a transplant. I'm a very straightforward candidate for a kidney transplant. My concern is that I'll be left waiting a long time for it. It already feels like I've been waiting an age at this stage. I do know that I'm struggling all the time. My body is obviously suffering all the time for this and it, it does need to be transplanted. I need to not be relying on a machine to keep me alive anymore. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.